0: be finishing our series on the fruit of the spirit so this of course comes from galatians chapter 5 verses 22 through 23 says the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace forbearance kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law And just a reminder, since it does say fruit of the Spirit rather than fruits of the Spirit, that means that each and every person who is being led by the Holy Spirit in their life will show all nine of these characteristics in their life. So we've talked about the first six so far, and we're going to finish the series talking about the last three, which is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's begin by looking at faithfulness and what faithfulness means from a biblical standpoint to see whether or not we are operating with faithfulness in our own life. So the passage of scripture I want to use to talk about faithfulness is found in Luke chapter 16, and it's verses 1 through 12. It's a parable that Jesus tells to his disciple, and I think it illustrates so well Um, what faithfulness looks like, or more accurately, what faithfulness doesn't look like, so that we can then understand what it should look like through this bad example, says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, "'What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses.' So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, "'How much do you owe my master?' "'900 gallons of olive oil,' he replied." The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred and fifty. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches?" And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So there's a lot in this parable that we could look at, and I don't have time to get into all of it. But what I want us to see from this story that has to do with faithfulness is, first of all, the manager was not faithful to the rich man that he was managing the accounts of because he was wasting uh, that person's possessions. And then we also see that when he's getting ready to be let go, he's gonna lose his job, he goes to the people that owes his master debt and has them lower their debt, and that's so he can get into good graces with them, good standing, so that when he loses his job, that they'll show mercy on him. And so this tells us a few things about this manager. First of all, it shows us that he was not faithful to his master, that he didn't take his job seriously and that he was abusing uh, the power that he had been given. And we also see that abuse of power with those that were in debt to the master, because if the manager was able to lower their debt, that means that he had made their debt higher than it needed to be. And that was fairly common practice during this time where people would give um, a debt to someone that was more than the actual debt so that they could take a little bit off the top for themselves. And that's why tax collectors had such a negative uh, standing in the society is because that's what tax collectors would do. They would say, you know, if they owed... 30 of something they would say well you owe 40 and then they would take the 10 the extra 10 for themselves and that's what we see the manager doing uh, In this story as well and so we see here a lack of faithfulness towards the master by abusing the master's possessions and a lack of faithfulness to the people who owe debts by making telling them that they owed more than they actually needed to And after he realized the situation he was going to be in, he changed his practices so that he could be in good standing with those other people, to which the master uh, actually commended because it showed that he was at least learning his lesson through what was happening. And, of course, we don't want to be like that, where it takes us getting to that point where we learn our lesson. We should be practicing Uh, faithfulness to others uh, regularly before it gets to that point where we've been caught so that we can be trusted, uh, showing that we can be trusted with little things so that we can then be trusted with greater things because that is a show of faithfulness. And what I want us to see in this story is the correlation between faithfulness and being trustworthy. The master was not able to trust that manager, nor were the people who were in debt able to trust that manager. Um, and that shows that he was not being faithful to either of them, because when their backs were turned, he was doing things that were not trustworthy. He would he was doing things that were deceptful. And and because of that, he had broke the trust with those people. He broke faithfulness, broke His word with them and so nobody could trust him anymore because he was not faithful to what he would say he was not living up um, living honestly with them and so for us then if we want to see whether or not we are practicing faithfulness we want to see whether or not we're trustworthy especially when no one else is watching so that leads me to this question Do you hold yourself accountable when no one else is? When nobody's there to hold you accountable, do you hold yourself accountable? Because if you do, then you are faithful to others. But if you do not, you are not only not trustworthy, but you are also unfaithful to what you have promised to do. And when I thought about this manager, it reminded me a lot of Tom Sawyer, um, from the book tom sawyer Uh, especially the scene about you know whitewashing the fence and how he had gotten in trouble with his aunt and she gave him the task of whitewashing the fence and he didn't like that task he didn't want to do it he wanted to go and play and have fun and so he ended up tricking his friends into thinking it was some great privilege to whitewash this fence so that they would do it for him and actually give him things so that they could have the opportunity of doing that. And that's a lot like uh, what this manager does. You know, not only is Tom Sawyer in that story being untrustworthy with his aunt, who is then not able to put her trust and faith in Tom Sawyer because he didn't do what he was tasked with doing, but now his friends aren't going to be able to trust him either or have faith in him because he tricked them into doing something that he was supposed to be doing. And although it worked out well for Tom in that story, that's usually not the case for us, and is, I would say, never the case long-term. Because we may be able to get away with something like that for a short while, but Scripture actually promises us that we will never get away with it forever. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, says for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. And that's a verse that has always stuck with me and it's always in the back of my mind whenever I'm tempted to uh, try to get away with something or be sneaky and, and, you know, fly under the radar or anything like that. I, I I always think of that verse and think, well, This will come out at some point or another. It won't stay hidden forever. And so I use that mentality to help keep me accountable. I use that scripture to keep myself accountable, even when nobody else is, because I know eventually the truth will get out. And the Holy Spirit always reminds me of that verse. And if we do follow the guiding of the Holy Spirit and listen to the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life... He will help keep us honest, live an honest life, make sure that we are doing what we say we will do, that we're doing what we're tasked with doing, and that we are living up to those expectations that have been set of us. And when we do that, people will be able to place their faith in us because they know that we are trustworthy. And that should be a characteristic of each and every believer, is that faithfulness. Being able to know that you will do what you are supposed to do, even when nobody else is around. That is faithfulness. Now let's move on to gentleness. For gentleness, I want us to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. It says, don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will." will. So this passage begins by urging believers not to get involved with foolish and stupid arguments that just leads to a lot of yelling and name-calling. Scripture is saying stay away from those conversations. And it then raises the bar uh, and challenges us that when we are talking with someone that is our opponent, I love that it uses that word opponent, not just somebody with a different view, uh, but somebody that is actively trying to come against us that we don't we don't become quarrelsome with them but actually we try to gently instruct them hoping that they will have repentance from where they are at and that we will be able to then lead them through our discussion to a knowledge of the truth And this is what I think of gentleness being. Out of this passage, I would say that gentleness is leading someone on the path to truth. That even if they are an opponent, even if they're someone that you hate, you can't stand, that you are not focused on trying to score points against them or trying to tear them down, but that you are trying to lead them into truth. And that can truly only happen if you're willing to avoid those foolish and stupid arguments, avoid that name-calling, and to gently instruct them about what is true and what is not. And so to see whether or not we are practicing gentleness in our life, here's the question for us. Do you try to win arguments or win people? Are you just trying to score points in the argument, show how much you know and how much the other person doesn't know, or are you trying in the conversation to lead that person into a knowledge of the truth? Are you trying to win the argument or are you trying to win over the person? Because if we are living a life of gentleness, we will want people to gain that knowledge of the truth. And that places a focus on the person, not the argument. Because we are all, you know, living the same path of life in this world. And for those of us who do know the truth of God's word... It was always someone who brought that truth to us and instructed us in that truth to to put us on the path that we are on, so that it it is then our responsibility to do that same thing for other people, to lead them on that path of truth with us, to show them the way that we have been shown. Have you ever been uh, sitting and talking with someone and you plan on going somewhere with them, maybe to a restaurant but they haven't been there before, usually what would you do? Well, nowadays I suppose we have smartphones and we can just look up the address. But before smartphones, usually what people would do would say, well, why don't I get in my car and you get in your car and you can just follow me there. You don't know where it is, but I do know where it is. So just stay behind me and I will lead you to where we are trying to get to. Now, imagine what would happen if you then both got into your separate cars and as soon as you got on the road, you, who were leading this person to where you were going, decided to treat the scenario like a race. And you just wanted to get there before the other person. You wanted to get there faster to show how much better you were than them. What would happen? The other person would not be able to follow you they would fall behind, they would lose sight of you, and they would become lost. And it would make no sense to try to race that person in the scenario where you are trying to lead them to the same place that you are wanting to go. Now apply that same mentality to our conversations with people who disagree with us, especially people that have a different faith from us. You don't want to be trying to race them. You don't want to be scoring points against them. You don't want to show how much better you are when the goal is to get them to the same place that you are going. And sometimes you have to slow down. You have to start with where they are and slowly lead them to where it is they need to be going. Lead them down the path that you have traveled to the destination that you both want to end up. That's how we should be treating it. It's not every man for himself. It's all of us trying to get to the same place. And that requires gentleness. I also think about when Paul and Silas were in prison, and an angel showed up, and an earthquake shook the prison and, and freed them. And as they were leaving, there was a jailer who was in charge of that prison that was there, and when he saw all of the captives free from their bindings, started to take his sword and was about to drive it into himself because he would rather die than put up with the torture and disgrace that would come from a jailer letting all of the prisoners escape. And Paul and Silas in that situation, rather than just forgetting about their jailer, who had kept them captive, and who knows wh- had done who knows what else to them while they were there, they didn't just run out, they said, hold on a second, look, we're all still here, this isn't a hopeless scenario, and they used that opportunity to lead that jailer and his entire household to Christ because they weren't just concerned with saving their own skins. They weren't just thinking about getting out of there and letting him get what he deserved, getting what was coming to him, and and let him uh, be given over to his own destructive uh, action, but instead to treat him gently and to lead him to a knowledge of the truth. And that's the way that we should practice gentleness in our own life is not be so concerned with tearing others down and building ourselves up and showing how much we know but rather in humility to let the holy spirit guide us to a place of building others up and leading them into a knowledge of the truth of scripture that is what gentleness looks like are we trying to win the arguments Or are we trying to win over the people? So that's faithfulness and gentleness, which leads us to the final characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. A great passage for self-control and self-discipline is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24-27. through Paul writing here, He says, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I love this illustration that Paul uses, and I mean, many people love it because I hear people preach on this passage all the time, but that's because it's just such a great picture that all of these people are running through life, and especially those that are trying to run uh, in the path of their faith. But there's only one way to God, and there's only one prize to run towards. And so because of that, you want to make sure that you're not running around aimlessly just running wherever you feel like going at the time or throwing punches into the air, but making sure that everything you do has purpose to it, focusing you in towards that one prize and that you're not just preaching that message to other people, but you are living that message in your own life as well. That you aren't just urging other people towards this right path that leads to the prize. But you yourself are demonstrating in your own life the things that you are preaching to others. That is self-discipline. That is self-control. And so what I want us to see in this passage is that if left without that self-control, we will run around aimlessly and we will fight like a boxer beating the air. But instead, we need to take those natural tendencies that we have, those basic impulses, and instead filter those impulses through a purpose that we are chasing after. That's what self-control is, filtering your impulses through purpose. Not just saying, I'm going to do whatever I feel like at the time, or whatever I maybe want to do, but make sure that everything I do lines up to where I am trying to go. Is it all directed towards your purpose, or are your impulses free to fly wherever they so choose? And one of the easiest ways for us to give in to those impulses is when we lose our temper. When something gets us angry, and I don't know about you, but one of the easiest things to get me angry is when I have planned out something, and then something goes wrong in that process. (laughs) That is probably the most difficult time it is for me to keep my cool, is when I wanted something to go a certain way, and then for whatever reason, it just doesn't go at all the way that I wanted it to go. I can sometimes get angry in those situations and and want to just act upon whatever impulse I feel at the time. So here's my question about self-control for you. Do you get angry quickly when things go wrong? And in those situations, do you let your impulses determine how you act or do you rein them in to make sure that you are not acting outside of the purpose that you are striving for in your life I think many of us grew up hearing the phrase you know there's no sense crying over spilled milk something that many parents tell their children there's no sense crying over spilled milk I think the adult version of that phrase is there's no sense cursing at a flat tire if you get a flat tire boy, that's one of the best indicators of whether or not someone has self-control, is how they handle that situation. Because obviously the goal at that moment is to take care of the tire, to fix the tire, or to get it towed somewhere that uh, they can put a new tire on it. Whatever needs to be done, the purpose in that situation is to deal with the tire, and standing there and cursing at the tire and swearing up a storm does absolutely nothing to meet that purpose. All it is doing is allowing yourself to give in to your impulse at the time. How, ang- how quickly do we get angry when things go wrong? How quickly do we let ourselves give in to the impulses we have Instead of focusing on the task at hand and continuing to move towards that goal that we are chasing after. Another part in scripture that I think is such a great illustration of the need for self control is Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, says, Like a city whose walls are broken is a person who lacks self control like a city whose walls are broken through. That is what a person who lacks self-control is like. And if you think about a city that no longer has its walls, they've been broken through and torn down, what happens then is each and every person in that city is in danger of the threats that were once kept outside that wall. They're in danger they're in trouble, they're open to harm, and that's exactly what it's like when someone loses their temper. All of the people around them, people that they long to protect, people that they care about, all of a sudden are in danger of the verbal assaults, and sometimes physical assaults, that come from that person who cares about them but because they have lost their temper, are giving in to base impulses. That is what a person who lacks self-control is like, a city whose walls are broken through. And it doesn't mean that when we give our life to the Holy Spirit, that we don't still sometimes become upset by things. Jesus was also upset by very many things that he encountered. But even in his anger, he did not sin. Even in his anger, he was always fulfilling the purpose that he had been given. And remember, some of our other purposes match up with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit that we've been talking about. Love, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness... All of those things, the ways we should be treating others that need to remain our purpose even when we're upset. Do you practice self-control? And when we give our life over to the Holy Spirit and let Him guide us, then He essentially puts a gate around our own spirit. It doesn't mean that Uh, Our spirit becomes completely negated or our desires and impulses suddenly disappear. It's walled off, but it's not walled off completely. There is a gate in that wall. And that gate is purpose. So that we can take our impulses, take our desires, many of which are stemmed from something that God has placed in our heart, but can often become distorted by our own anger and selfish selfish desires. And so, rather than just letting those things fly out every which way they can go, we instead take it to the gate and see, does this fit with the purpose that I am trying to accomplish? And if so, then it can be allowed through, as long as it's still operating in things like gentleness and love, but it has to go through that gate of purpose. Does this match up with what I want to accomplish in life and what God wants for me to accomplish in my life? The Holy Spirit puts that gate around our spirit and in doing so allows us to practice self-control. So, this is the end of the series. That was all nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we've talked about faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control today, we can see that if we are led by the Holy Spirit, first of all, we will keep ourselves honest as we practice faithfulness. We will build others up in gentleness and we will build a gate of purpose around our spirit as we practice self-control. And it is all done through the guiding Holy Spirit. So, until next time, this has been another Sermon in the Pocket. As always, if you have any comments or questions, you can always contact me through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at SermonIn-thepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you to share this with other people to help get the message out there. But until next time, thank you for listening, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day.